Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Shout out to any new listeners who are joining us for the very first time. We're happy to have you on board. For those of you who have been here from the start, you already know the drill. We live and die by this team just like the rest of you, and we make no apologies for that. So welcome into another Bastards Roundtable episode. I am your host, Jason Kelly, coming to you from Canton, Massachusetts. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find the podcast account at Bastards underscore Boston. Joining me on the roundtable tonight from Reading, Pennsylvania, is Micah Storms. Micah, how are we doing? I'm doing well, Jason. I think our therapy session on Wednesday night definitely helped. Uh, doesn't improve the situation because most likely the Red Sox are still not playing one meaningful game in September, but um, I think I can look at things a little differently and not feel so frustrated after that just brutal Astro series. Yeah, we, we've had a little bit of a chance to decompress after that uh, wet fart of a three-game series, so that, that has certainly helped, I think, um, for sure. Also with us on the roundtable tonight from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, hopefully staying dry, uh, by way of Wyndham, Maine, is Terry Cushman. Terry, how you doing? Full of piss and vinegar, as always. I don't know if it'll come out on this show, but uh, doing all right. Uh, the tropical storm, I think the rain ended around 6 or 7 a.m. And um, no, uh, no damage to reports. Good. Yeah, that's good. That's that's what we were hoping for. So. And shout out to anyone in Florida who's who's dealing with that. Hopefully everyone's okay and everyone's safe. That was uh, that was a doozy. So, uh, but with that, we're going to get into what's happened over the last twenty four to forty eight hours. Obviously, the Angels uh, made a lot of a uh, lot of news with their DFA's that they all sent out, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But the Red Sox themselves have made some roster moves ahead of that. A couple of guys are up couple of guys are down. So the brief of it is that Brandon Walter is up. Willier Abreu is back from the paternity leave and Emmanuel Valdez is also up. So those guys are now joining the Red Sox. They are on the roster. We'll be seeing them in regular games. We've seen them in Kansas city this weekend. So a couple of young guys joining the fold here as the Red Sox are still a little bit too far out of the wild card. We're not sure if they're quite, dead in the water. I think last episode we pretty much said felt that way, but we also said one big run could get them back into it. Whether or not we believe that will happen, you know, <laughs> remains to be seen, but we got some young guys coming up and hopefully they'll see a lot of playing time uh, as, as this month unfolds, because at this point you have to look towards the future. You have to look towards 2024, even 2025 and how this roster is going to shake out. And, you know, are the Red Sox a team that has, really good young talent that you can invest in and you know that's your future or are these guys just 4a players that don't really belong in the big leagues so mike i'll start with you with all the roster moves that happened today with the guys that have been called up is there anyone that you're particularly excited about seeing more of is there someone that you think they need to highlight more as we head into this final month uh, I w I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to take the pair of outfielders. That's the, those are the two that I'm most intrigued about, and that's Abreu and Rafaela. I guess you could make a case that Rafaela could be a super utility guy, but I think with this roster moving forward, with how poor they are defensively, it, it sure seems like Rafaela is supposed to be the center fielder of the future, um, if, that's in, if that's what they want to do. But... I think he would be a really quick fix for the outfield defense because there was a lot of praise about Jaron Duran's improvement in defense. And I do believe there was improvement, but if you look at his, at his advanced metrics, he still had negative five defensive runs saved in the outfield. So it's not like he is all of a sudden, you know, one of the best defenders in baseball. That's he's far from that still. So I think with Rafaela's track record of being a really good defender. I'm really intrigued by him. And Abreu's swing, we talked about it when he debuted in that Astros series. He just looked really comfortable. Uh, I think the the strikeout rate is still could be a concern, but there's definitely power in there. 
And I think moving forward, those two guys with the log jam in the outfield, let's see what those two guys can do and then evaluate things in the offseason because you'll have Duran, Verdugo still, Abreu, Rafaela, Ref Snyder still. He just signed that extension this year. I think it was a two-year extension with a player option or something like that. So he's going to be the one of your, your bench players for the outfield. But it's a log jam. All those guys cannot play. They can't break camp next year with the big league club. So personally, I would like to see Abreu and Rafaela get as many ABs as possible. Uh, that would push Verdugo out of the mix for the most part. You know, he can still get ABs because you're if you're going to trade him, you still want to showcase what he can do. Adam Duvall, he's been the hottest hitter in on on the Red Sox, but he's not a part of this mix next year. So to me, Duvall probably is the odd man out in this one. And Yoshida, he can DH and still get him ABs, but you know for the most part what you have in Yoshida. Maybe next year after a full major league season, he can step it up a little bit, you know, in terms of a full big league season, what he can do. But I, it's about seeing what Rafaela in terms of his plate discipline, what he can do and Abreu defensively. How does he look? How does he, what's his, his full stat line look like? I think the power, like I said before, is going to be there, but you, you can't play all of them, but if it's either bloom or if it's the, somebody brand new, they will have to pick between you know of the four or five options they have to pick probably one or two to move and i would imagine whoever they decide to trade among the outfielders could be used to get a starting pitcher and and, and improve the rotation so it's just about making sure you don't get rid of the wrong guy and that guy goes on to be you know a big time player maybe an all-star for another team and the guy you end up keeping ends up being a fringe 4A guy or bench player that you are now forced into a starting role, which it's, it's really hard to, to kind of see that in short sample sizes. And I don't think we're going to necessarily see that in the month of September, but um, I getting those guys as many ABs as possible. And you know, even if they're really in on Rafaela, we saw with Casas, the more at-bats you can get him, the better off he's going to be next year. So I'm excited to see it. I, I Personally, I love watching young players develop. I'm not saying I like that more than watching the Red Sox win, but if I have to find some silver lining in the Red Sox not playing meaningful games in September, it's going to be that I get to watch these young guys develop. Yeah, it certainly helps being able to see that, uh, that now prized farm system come to life and actually play meaningful, you know, somewhat meaningful games here in September. I should point out, by the way, that David Hamilton was the corresponding move to Willier Abreu coming back from the paternity list. He has been sent back down to Worcester, so you won't be seeing David Hamilton this month, um, which I think we're all okay with. But, Terry, your thoughts on uh, the roster moves today? The biggest curiosity to me is what is the path going forward like how does the front office view the month of september now from micah's standpoint he he was operating mostly i think on the basis that we're out of it let's give the kids a chance and and see what we have for next year so if that's the case then yeah you could very well see guys like Verdugo and Duvall getting less time. Um, if that's not the case, you could put Sedan Rafaela at shortstop. He's possibly going to be an upgrade over Urias and who else? Who's been playing second? I'm drawing blanks. Um, <laughs> are we all? Well, it'll be Valdez. Pablo Reyes. Oh, Reyes. Pablo Reyes is exactly. hurt, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right so you put you put him at short unless he can play second i don't know if he can if rafael can play second then that's where you put him but we know story can so if you're still if you're still going for it here at the 11th hour and, and the front office is going to give the outfield uh, the i mean excuse me the lineup every chance it has you can easily make the case by putting rafaela in your infield every day and then your outfield is still going to have to have a lot of Verdugo 
and Yoshida out there. And then so you could easily, well, you could easily put Abreu in there. It's all three lefties, though, which we've discussed ad, ad nauseum. I don't see how Emmanuel Valdez is going to help. He's a terrible defender. Started off good offensively, but then the the bat cooled off. So um, I, I don't see any... I don't see Valdez being useful at all, really. Um, he doesn't have he doesn't have a future, I don't think, with his bad defense. And we're, we've been the Boston Red Sox have probably been the worst defensive MLB team of the 2020s of this current decade. Worst defensive team in baseball. So that that should further underscore my expectation that Valdez has no future in 2024. Could be, you know, the third or fourth piece of a trade package, maybe. But uh, Brandon Walter, I think, could certainly have, uh, you know, some use because we're just so taxed uh, in the bullpen. He could also start. I mean, you've got some starting pitching that could use uh, could use an off day or be skipped once through the rotation here. And interestingly, Walter has a 1.16 ERA for the month of August in Worcester in 23 and one third innings. He only gave up uh, three earned runs. So good month for him. He didn't look super spectacular um, in his previous call up. Chris Murphy was the one that, that got to stay and he pitched well for a while. But going back to how the front office and Alex Cora see this month, it was interesting because just two games ago, Raffaello was supposed to start that game. That was the expectation. The day after he got called up, he was supposed to start that game. And then Cora said, he told the beat writers, he said, no, we have to put Duvall in there because we have to ride the hot hand. So I'm curious to see how short of a pivot from two games ago, this could really be if, if Verdugo is out of the lineup and Yoshida's out of the lineup and it's not a lefty on the mound and we're getting Rafaela and um, Abreu in the outfield. <laughs> I mean, I, then I guess we're, we're done for the year. You know, that's, we're not going for it anymore. And six and a half games out. That's, that's how, far we are from that last wild card spot that's basically insurmountable you have to win 20 or 21 of the remaining 28 games to get in I just the math just isn't there and the pitching hasn't been there there's just there's just no way so I I just I hate not being relevant in the month of September. It's just, it's a, it's a theme. So for this will be four out of the last five years. We, we had a meaningless September. Yeah. And I think this month is going to be a big, uh, writing on the wall kind of month for this team, because you put it perfectly. Like if depending on how the lineup looks every day going forward at this point, it's going to tell you, how the Red Sox feel about where they are and what their future is. If Verdugo is suddenly sitting and Abreu is taking his at bats, that's very telling. Um, if you know Rafaela is getting more playing time than Adam Duvall, I think that's telling. Even though we know Duvall's not here next year, it's telling in the sense that you're not going for it right now. Even though six and a half, I think I be- I agree it's probably insurmountable just because of the teams that are ahead of you. You've got to bank on Houston, Toronto, Seattle faltering, like cratering in the month of September. That's not going to happen. So just based on where they are and what they're looking up at, six and a half feels like 12 or 15 out just based on the teams that are ahead of them. So it does feel insurmountable. And as much as I'm thrilled that, you know, the young guys are up and they look pretty good so far. Abreu's looked very good so far. Rafaela, I think, you know, it's very limited, but I think he can show you a little bit this month. Um, that's great. But if you start to see guys like Alex Verdugo is going to be a big one. Is he going to lose playing time this month to guys like Willie or Abreu? Because 
he's kind of been off and on. Like we were talking about him in May and June as this is a guy they should extend. You should offer him a contract extension right now, as soon as you can. They didn't do it. Then his name came up in trade talks. And I think that pissed him off. And and he had some personal stuff too on the side with his grandmother passing. He had some very difficult situations there personally. And he went into a slump. You know, the other day he was seen talking to High and Bloom after the game for 40 minutes in the outfield. And from what we've heard, it probably wasn't a great conversation. Again, it's just, you know, a lot of speculation, a lot of just sort of what people are seeing, but that's always a little bit concerning. You know, one player talking to the CBO out on the field by himself, not a great look, especially after what they just went through with Houston. So if Verdugo is on the bench and Abreu is playing two, three games in a row, that's going to be very telling. And it's just, I, I think that this, organization this franchise is going to face a lot of criticism that i don't think they're ready for because the ultimate question they're going to be asked is what's the direction here are you guys going to go for it in 2024 are you going to you know spend the money in the off season are you going to you know make an aggressive move to improve this team or are you just going to bring the same guys back sprinkle in you know a new kid like Rafaela, and we're just going to try to do that formula again um it didn't work this year. I don't think it'll work next year either. So they better be ready for that. And the one thing I want to see is, is it so bad if Trevor Story plays second base for the remainder of September? We know he can do it. And I know that they're so determined to put him at shortstop. No, he's got to be a shortstop. Fine. But Cora, when Rafaela was called up, said he's only going to play shortstop or center field. What's the problem with putting Story at second, Rafaela at short every day going forward? You've got to get Story built back up. You've got to get his confidence back. And I know that he's on a little bit of like a quote-unquote pitch count for a position player. He only plays every couple of days and gets a couple of days off. But I don't see what the problem is there. Like, I know they want him as a shortstop long-term, but you just called up Rafaela, who's one of your best prospects. Don't you want to see the most out of him too? and have Duvall playing center field every day. So I don't see why they can't do that. And I know they may not necessarily be going for it, but that's at least a lineup you could put together that shows we may not be fully committed to going for it, but hey, we're at least going to put our three best in those positions. Um, I don't know. I just think that would be very telling to see how that goes. Adam Duvall is in a walk year now granted he's only going to be signing one or two year deals at a time but he is the hot hand right now with the red Sox. he's hit seven or eight home runs in the last 10 games and how is he going to take okay i'm i'm only going to be playing one out of every three games now one out of every four how's he going to take that alex verdugo isn't quite in a walk year but he's it's his career best season. Why wouldn't he want to finish it on a good note? And then if he does get traded, maybe take a little bit of leverage into some possible contract extensions with whatever team he ends up with. And Verdugo can't like the optics of it either. You know, I'm I'm being I'm the best player on the team. And, and by the by being the best player on the team, he's got a three point five war. Nobody in the Red Sox offense is even close. I think uh, Rafi Devers has a 2.3 war, and Duran was 2.2. If you're wondering where Yoshida is, uh, he had a 1.2 war last I checked. Casas, uh, because of his bad start, is like a 1.9 war, and I don't think anyone is even remotely relevant. Connor Wong, I think, was a 1.9, actually. So... Verdugo's a 3.5 war. He is your best guy in the lineup all around, offensively, defensively. You know, he he's your best contributor. And Alex Cora challenged him to be better this year. He had a 1.1 war last year. And if you're a casual fan, I probably should have said at the beginning, war is wins above replacement. 
So, I mean, anything three or above, you're a very good player. If you're six or seven or above, you're an MVP candidate. But so Cora challenges Verdugo to be better, and he triples his war last year. He triples it. He he answered the challenge and, and basically exceeded it. So, I mean, how is he going to take being on the bench? And, and the reason why I'm, I'm pointing this all out is you want the clubhouse culture to be good while the kids are up. You don't want this toxic negativity floating around in there because the veterans are rightfully so a little bit upset. And this and if Bloom gets upset with the fact that his clubhouse is upset, well, you should have sold at the deadline and and then called your kids up a little bit earlier. Rafaela, they probably wouldn't have started the clock with, but you I don't think they were worried about that with the Brayu. And you know, so I it's just the theme of the the Bloom era is just just continues to not make sense and my goodness and today was an off day i thought well you know i don't know if fire bloom watch is officially on but this is the first day where it kind of makes a little bit of sense you're starting a new month there the team's going on the road it's a perfect time to just keep bloom in in boston and then just handle business but you know it didn't happen so anyway End of rant. Yeah, just to give you a perspective on war. Alex Verdugo is 3.5 war. Raphael Devers is a 2.3, which you thought that might be a little higher. Justin Turner, one of your best offensive players, 1.9. Oh, now, war God. does factor defense in, and Turner does not play defense. He's mostly a DH, so True. that's a big part of it. And Raphael Devers' defense took a massive hit this year, so that probably took a massive hit to his war, but still... Verdugo being above Devers, I don't think many people saw that coming. So to your point, yeah, Alex Verdugo is having one of his best career years um, analytics-wise, and he starts sitting, that's going to send a bad message he's, for sure. He's the whipping boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Micah, any additional thoughts? Yeah, I have two. Uh, on Verdugo, I'm just curious how other teams view him. Because he doesn't have a lot of power, but I do think playing half of his games inside Fenway Park doesn't really do his power much justice. That that right center gap just for him and his swing, it just doesn't fit. So I think if he were to go to a smaller ballpark where it has a little bit of a shorter porch, I think the home runs, he could probably be closer to 15 to 20 in the right circumstances. And then he probably comes a little bit different of a player you, you view him a little differently i think especially since his defense is so good um depending on the outfield that he were if he were to be traded he could really transform an outfield he's been that good defensively this year um so that's just my thought on verdugo as for the red sox being six and a half games back um you guys were talking about the fact that they have to jump over a bunch of teams i was just looking at texas's schedule um, Texas has three games against Houston and seven against Seattle. So, you know, those teams that are in the mix there that the Red Sox have to, if they, in theory, were going to get back in the mix, um, that's 10 games, you know, against the teams that the Red Sox are, are chasing. Texas also has four against Toronto. Um, so, again, against teams that the Red Sox are chasing. And Boston plays them still three more times. And they also play Minnesota three times. So Texas definitely has a tough schedule and they're kind of, they've been reeling over the last month. So it's not going to be easy for them. Uh, if you want to look at Seattle, Seattle has three against Houston and then seven against Texas. So they, they have those 10 games as well. They also have four against Tampa Bay, three against LA and three against Cincinnati. So their schedule is not easy. Now we also know Boston's schedule is also very challenging because they got Baltimore, Tampa Bay as well. Texas. So um, I'm not suggesting by any means that I think the Red Sox are about to put themselves back into the uh, the wild card race. I, I basically said with my intro uh, that they should play the, the kids and sit the guys who have been playing all year. But um, I guess if you were a complete optimist, which I like to think I'm optimistic, but I'm not that optimistic. 
Um, maybe there's a, a really, really, really skinny path to getting back in the mix. But I just thought that was interesting. The fact that the teams they are chasing, they have a lot of interdivision games coming up. Two things real quick, just to build off Micah's point. A, a team could also value Alex Verdugo as a leadoff guy if that's a need that they have. And we had one for the longest time, and guess who filled it? Uh, Alex Verdugo. Um, and then, of course, Duran as well. But he could be a two-hole hitter. He could be a five-hole hitter. Um, talking schedules, I was wondering if you was getting to Toronto because Texas, I think, could fall out of it. They've lost like something like... I don't know, like 12 out of their last 15, something like that. It's something, it's something ugly. They lost eight in a row at the worst of it. Uh, and so if any team's going to have a massive choke job, it's going to be the Texas Rangers. But one team has an extremely easy schedule that we didn't talk about, and that's the Toronto Blue Jays. Three games against Colorado, three games against the Oakland A's, three games against Kansas City. That's how they start the month. That's their first nine games. And then if Texas is still faltering, they've got four against Texas. And then they've got three against the Red Sox. Then they have three against the Yankees. Three against Tampa. That's going to be tough. Three more against the Yankees. And uh, and then they end off with Tampa. I think, I think the Blue Jays are going to have the most to say about that third playoff spot. They're not going to have Bo Bichette. He's been dinged up and just went back on the 10-day IL. I think it's a quad strain, something like that. And that's um, typically uh, a three- or four-week thing. So, uh, And sometimes even longer than that. It's, it's, it's like a hamstring almost in terms of, uh, you know, you really need to take your time uh, rehabbing it. But having said that, I mean, they still do have a good lineup. That kid that destroyed us uh, has been doing pretty well lately, too. I forget his name, but he got called up right before that series where they swept us and and um, has continued to play well. So um, Texas is definitely going to uh, not excuse me. Texas Toronto is definitely going to. They've got the easiest schedule by far. Yeah, I could see Toronto having a very good month, especially with that schedule. Holy smokes, that's that's a bunch of cupcakes there. And yeah, Texas has been faltering for quite a while. Their second half in general has not been good. Um, they've they've really they got off to a hot start in the first half, and for them, thank God for that because their second half has been underwhelming to say the least. Um, last point on Verdugo: like, would Cincinnati not be the perfect trade partner? For a guy like Alex Verdugo, that ballpark suits him perfectly. The ball flies out of there, um, especially to right field. So for a hitter like him, it's perfect. And Cincinnati has done nothing but draft pitching for the last five, six years. So they've got to have some pitching that they haven't called up yet that the Red Sox could potentially poach in a deal like that. Maybe you sweeten the pot, you throw in Valdez, you throw in a Blaze Jordan, and you get – you know, one of their best, you know, top five prospect arms back. I mean, you know, it's it's way in the distance. We don't know what Verdugo's future is, but Cincinnati's a, tem- a team I look at that they need outfielders, as we'll get to in this this next part, but they've always needed outfielders. They need a guy who's young and, you know, still has years left in him, and they need offense. They have a ton of pitching. They just can't score. So, to me, Cincinnati, like they need a leadoff hitter. He could fit all those roles, and they have so much pitching. If I'm the Red Sox and I'm not committed to Alex Verdugo, which we'll see what happens there, but if they're not, talk to Cincinnati. You know, offer them a package. It starts with Verdugo. We'll throw in Valdez, maybe a Blaze Jordan, maybe someone else. Who's one of your better prospect pitchers? We'll take them because Hunter Green's a stud, Nick Lodolo is a stud. Cincinnati can draft some pitching, so I'd be I would have no problem taking one of their pitches off their hands. But that's an off-season topic. We'll see if uh, if it gets to that point. But certainly, Alex Verdugo is going to be a, a guy to keep an eye on. So the other big topic around baseball this week was the waiver wire, which the Los Angeles Angels certainly kicked off by DFAing four of their biggest stars. 
Lucas Giolito, Matt Moore, Ronaldo Lopez from you know the White Sox, and Hunter Renfro as well. Harrison Bader was DFA'd by the Yankees. So there are a lot of guys that were just available for anyone to take. And we were wondering if the Red Sox would bite on any of those guys. If they did, would they end up with any of them? Turns out they did not. Um, the Cleveland Guardians were the big winners in this one. They come away with Giolito, Matt Moore, and Reynaldo Lopez. The Cincinnati Reds, who we just talked about, again, outfield help. They get Harrison Bader and Hunter Renfro. Um, and probably the only other notable thing is that Mike Clevenger, who was available, did not get claimed on waivers. He returns to the White Sox. Obviously, Clevenger has a lot of off-field issues. He's also got a lot of money attached to his deal, so uh, uh, that's a big part of it too. But the Cleveland Guardians, five games out in their division, so they're not looking for a wild-card spot. They're 11 games out of the wild card. They need to win the division. They need to usurp the Twins for first place in the AL Central. And kind of an interesting move because they sold Aaron Savali at the deadline. Terry Francona has basically announced he's stepping away after this year because of all of his health problems. I think a lot of people declared the Guardians just dead in the water after that. But here they come. They pick up three veterans out of nowhere. And it looks like now they're going to try and make a push for the division. So, Micah, I'll start with you. Were there any guys on that list that you really wanted the Red Sox to get a claim on or potentially steal? And apart from that, your reaction to just Cleveland getting the biggest haul out of anybody? I don't know if I would want the Red Sox necessarily to – I guess, sign one of those players. I I would have been fine with any of them because God knows that the Red Sox could have used any of those pitchers because their their pitching staff has been depleted now. Um, So those players could have helped this year's team. The problem is all those players would just be rentals, and that's why those other teams um, essentially released them because they was just complete payroll dumps, which it's just so fascinating that that happened because – and this is kind of the first time we've seen this. And it was it was big markets, the Angels, um, and the um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the other team here, the Angels, yeah, and White Sox, the, the White Sox and Yankees. Thank you, goodness gracious. Um, but they just were okay with salary dumps, and we just haven't seen anything like that in years past. And I'm curious if it'll be a trend. Um, I would personally like to see Major League Baseball adjust. Um, this rule where you can uh, you can claim as many guys as you want. Um, if anyone plays fantasy football and you have a waiver wire, <laughs> um, if you claim somebody, then you go to the bottom of the, the list, and then the teams that are below you essentially in the order, they would jump ahead because you've already got somebody. But you rank them based on how, how much you prioritize the players. So I, I personally think, yeah, the Guardian should be able to claim – somebody before you know the teams have a better record than them but they shouldn't be able to claim everybody um i think it would make it more interesting um i I would be for a change in that rule but it was just weird because uh, if you if you heard the harrison bader interview it was 10 minutes before the one game and he found out he was released and he was like what does that even mean (laughs) at this time of the year i don't think anybody really anticipated potentially having the opportunity to play for a different team and a a team that's in contention. So very interesting that that had happened. Um, If I had to pick one guy that I would have really been interested in, it probably would have been Lucas Giolito just because if he has a good September, it's all about building a relationship with the the player. And, And could you have some type of negotiation advantage because, Hey, Lucas Giglio, you had a brutal season with not only the White Sox, but the Angels. You came to Boston. You had a good four starts. You know, we worked with you. We we found something in your pitch mix. Not that I'm saying Dave Bush would be able to find that pitch mix solution, but just say in theory that it happens. Um, you know, would he say, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to sign either a one year deal or I'm going to I'm going to give you maybe the I'm going to listen to your offer first and it gives the Red Sox some advantage because I do think 
just based on the underlying numbers of Gilito, there is something in there that I do think he could be a productive pitcher. Maybe not the Cy Young caliber pitcher. Maybe he could, depending on the right team, but I think he could be a productive starter. He's been really durable over the last couple of years. So I would have been interested in Giolito just to see if they could maybe fix something and then develop that relationship where it gives them some type of edge over the other teams heading into the offseason. Terry, your thoughts on the waiver wire madness from Thursday? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been a good summer in terms of the right guys going to the right places to set up this epic October. I mean, Otani didn't get traded. Dylan Cease didn't get traded. Some of the destinations for the players that did aren't necessarily um, that great. And then today, you kind of had the Indians crashing the party. And their only pathway into the playoffs is to win the division. The The Twins are by far the weakest of all the division winners. And Jason, you pointed out before the show, I mean, they traded Aaron Savali, and now you're adding Lucas Giolito. It's just kind of a lateral move at that point. And so it, it's just interesting. And uh, to add on to Micah's point, if you could have built a relationship with Giolito, perhaps you could have offered him a deal like what the Giants gave to Carlos Rodon. Just give him a three-year deal, but give him an opt-out after the first year. So if he does bounce back and, and have a good year, then, then you know, at least we got him for a season and, you know, made a good stab at the playoffs next year. But... But it never even got to us. I have the draft order right here. So if the Guardians um, didn't take him, and as well as that Lopez kid, the Marlins were only two teams after them with the Yankees being in between. So the Yankees probably wouldn't have done anything. And then Miami was set to be very aggressive and probably would have acquired most of them. They're only two and a half games out of that third wild card. So that's a, that's definitely a doable thing. I mean, you have a strong week. You win five out of seven. You're probably right there uh, in that third spot. So they ended up being the big losers. Um, after the Marlins would have been the Cincinnati Reds, who aren't much further out. And then you got the Arizona Diamondbacks, who I think are in a wild card spot right now. So, and then after them were the Twins and the Red Sox. So the Red Sox never really had a chance to get any of these players because they were six teams after the Guardians with all but the Yankees in between, uh, probably going to clean house. So um, I'll also say this before I pass it on to Jason. I don't think this is going to be a common thing, uh, you know, every year. I don't think we're going to see a team suddenly pivot. I mean, the the Angels gave up good prospects for Giolito, and then not even a month later, they're they're dumping him for free. The Angels didn't when they put these guys on waivers, they don't get anything in in return. They don't get any players in return. All they're getting is salary re- relief, and their big motivator was they wanted to get below the luxury tax. So that's why you saw this kind of weird, abrupt fire sale. The White Sox put a couple of guys on. Um, Carlos Carrasco, the Mets put him on waivers. Uh, He's got an ERA just a tick under four. So he'd be the ace of the Red Sox. (laughs) Being a little bit facetious. But on paper, yeah, he would. uh, I think actually Bayo is still above him. But, But yeah. So there goes that. And actually, one last, one last thing. I'm calling it right now. Josh Donaldson is going to be the World Series MVP for the Brewers, who signed him uh, to a minor league deal today. And that puts him on the 40-man, which would make him eligible, even if they called him up on September 15th. But something weird like that could happen. So I don't know if... I don't know what they're going to do. Hopefully, he, he can't really go in there with a bad attitude. So maybe they'll send him to church every morning just so, uh, you know, he comes in all nice and on the straight and narrow. But, yeah. 
Well, knowing Donaldson, he'd probably be thrilled to be in Milwaukee. He can finally grow out the full Viking look that he's always wanted because the Yankees won't allow that. So <laughs> maybe that was part of his bad attitude. Yeah. Um, I would love that just for the schadenfreude towards Yankees fans. But yeah, I agree. I don't think this DFA dump or this waiver dump is going to be um, a trend going forward. I think that what you saw this year is that, I mean, two of the three teams that did it, you know, the, the Angels and um, White Sox. and the White Sox, they're run by idiots. So, of course, they did it. Yeah, I mean, the Angels have one of the worst ownership groups in all of baseball. The White Sox just completely cleaned out their front office. And the Yankees are still run by Cashman and Hal, which, you know, those, those are a pair of idiots, too. So I don't think it's going to become a trend. I think that most of baseball executives are smart enough to know that you should do what the Mets did, where – Okay, our season's done. Let's sell. Let's sell Scherzer. Let's sh- let's sell Verlander, and let's get a bunch of prospects back. And yeah, in a big market like New York, that's hard to do. Fans aren't exactly patient, especially Mets fans. But you know, it's they still made the better move than the Yankees did. The Yankees just giving up Harrison Bader for nothing was stupid on their part. Uh, the White Sox giving up Ronaldo Lopez for nothing was stupid. The Angels, what they did is insanely stupid. Um, So I don't think it's going to become a trend. And I'm not, like, disappointed that the Red Sox didn't get anybody. Obviously, they were not in line, you know, in terms of the pecking order. So Cleveland was ahead of them. Cincinnati was ahead of them in terms of how waivers work. The one guy I actually wanted on that list was Matt Moore, which sounds weird because he's 34, former starter. He's been bounced around a little bit, but... Since he's been a reliever, he's been pretty good. He's had a good year with the Angels. He had a great year with Texas last year. The Red Sox need a solid, like solid to really good left-handed reliever in their bullpen. And Matt Moore is a guy who had great pedigree coming out, obviously was like a top prospect with the Rays. You know, when he first came up, got hurt a couple of times, as most Rays pitchers do, had to kind of rediscover himself, but he did it. And he's done it as a reliever. So even though, you know, 34 years old, that's concerning. But look, who are your best two relievers right now? Chris Martin, who's, what, 38? And Kenley Jansen, who's also in his late 30s. So that's not the worst thing for a relief pitcher. So that's actually the guy that I wanted. Ronaldo Lopez interests me too because he can throw bullets. But I don't know if it's going to be consistent enough. I had no interest in Giolito. I talked about this on the last show that – you know, Giolito does nothing for me. I'd rather get more out of Cutter Crawford and just let someone else pay for Giolito than bring him in here. Um, and you had no use for Hunter Renfro. You have a better version than Adam Duvall right now. So um, not devastating that the Red Sox didn't end up with any of them. Again, it's it's the way of the pecking order. But Matt Moore is the guy I had my eye on. I was like, if he slips through the cracks, I hope that they put a claim on him. Um, and we don't know. We, we don't know if the Red Sox put a claim on any of them or none of them at all. I, I don't think that will ever come out. Um, but if they at least did, I would hope it'd be on more Lopez, something like that. Get some bullpen help, but wasn't in the cards and that's okay. Um, but you know what? The Guardians, they decide to swoop those guys up. They decide to go for it. They have a shot at their division. Their division leader, I think, is very vulnerable. I think the Twins are incredibly vulnerable so good for them for going for it um unfortunately for the red sox they're just not in that position you know you're you're certainly not in a in a division position and like in the wild card we talked about the teams ahead of you you know we talked about texas schedule gonna be tough but seattle and toronto they should be just fine so it's an uphill battle and you know they didn't come away with anybody but we've got the young guys coming up maybe that's just as good for all we know uh, Micah, any additional thoughts on that? You're on mute, buddy. Terry, go ahead first. So crazy hypothetical. And let me ask you a question first. Would anything the Angels do surprise you at this point? No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Okay. What if they put Mike Trout on waivers? Just to get out of the salary, he's uh, he's owed two hundred and fifty eight million, which would be a massive contract for this winter if anybody were to sign something like that. 
uh, for the next seven years. And that's just your way out. Now, the one complication there that kind of makes it somewhat unrealistic is he's got 10-5 rights. And if you don't know what those are, if a player has been in the league for 10 years and with his current team for the last five, he has the right to veto any trade. Some players need to have no trade rights put in their in their contracts. Sander Bogarts uh, was essentially one of those guys uh, the first time around uh, in 2019, but um, but Trout doesn't have a need for that anymore. And uh, so anyway, I just thought, well, that that's a that's an abrupt way to get out of it. I mean, if the if the Guardians claimed him, then they wouldn't have actually with the money. So he actually could have went pretty deep, actually. I mean, at that point, if you're the Angels, why not try to trade him? Find some team that, you know, and you hope that he approves the trade, but find some team that's willing to take on most of, if not all, the money. You know, a team like the Giants, they have so much money to spend. They have a lot of cap room. Why not trade him there? He's still on the West Coast. They're a team that's not too far out of contention. And... You know, they always take on bad contracts. They signed Evan Longoria to a stupid deal. They signed Andrew McCutcheon to a stupid deal. So they're willing to take on bad money just to contend again. If I were the Angels, I would definitely, if I'm trying to get out of the Trout contract, you know, offer him in a trade to San Francisco or something like that. I don't think that he would veto that. I I think if, if you're Trout at this point, don't you want out of L.A. or at least that side of L.A.? I I don't think there's too many trades he would veto. Well, if so. it's a trade, it would have to wait for the winter because it, it, he can only leave via waivers uh, in August. Right. But um, I think he could ask for a trade, especially if he knows if he's positive, Shohei isn't coming back. There's no point. There really isn't any point anyway <laughs> to stay there. The Angels are never going to be good under Artie Moreno's ownership and not to sound like a complete savage, but he's in his mid to upper 80s. So, you know, the circle of life is going to come into play at some point. But um, but it's going to be a little while before the Angels are competitive again. Well, and keep in mind, we talked last episode about people who want Alex Cora fired. The bad managers out there. Phil Nevin is a bad manager. <laughs> you want to play for that guy? Like, Good luck. That that's an example of the grass isn't always greener. They got rid of Mike Sosha years ago. They're up with Phil Nevin right now. So uh, the Angels are a good test case for that. Uh, Micah, any any thoughts on the the Trout situation or anything else involving that? I don't know if this is a hot take. I just feel like it's the writing's on the wall. But I think the Los Angeles Angels are the worst organization in sports, professional sports. I think that is what they've done. I mean, just look at the deadline alone. You had an opportunity to completely transform your your farm system, and they did the complete opposite and then released the players that they just depleted their farm system with. And they already had a bottom third farm system in the league. So it just – I think – one, I think Artie Moreno needs to sell the team, but – However this plays out, I really think you could have an Oakland A's 2.0 in L.A. with the Angels because I don't see this team. They, they don't have much at the big league roster. There's a couple of players that are intriguing, but why are you keeping them if you're in complete sell mode? And if you're Mike Trout, get the hell out of there because they've wasted his entire career. Remember, Mike Trout has one postseason hit. He's played in one postseason series, but he has one postseason hit, and he's probably the best player in the last 25, 30 years. Some would make the case he's a top 25 player of all time based on his ability and his numbers, and he's been wasted completely in L.A., and if I'm him, even if Shohei Otani's coming in, get me out of there because that's an organization that has no clue what they're doing. And it's it's interesting because like they're one of the teams that they dumped at you know they they did all those waiver claims and I'm pretty sure you look at those three teams the three big ones the Yankees the White Sox the Angels I know for a fact 
in our preseason show, I picked the White Sox to win the Central. So that's looking great. We all know who picked the Angels to win the West on our show. I'll, I'll let him answer for himself on, on the weekend. And I'm pretty sure none of us picked the Yankees to win the East, but I think they we had them as a, a wild card or at least somewhere in the mix there. Not even close. I, I don't know. I think I had them out, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I picked them to get in. Char- oh, not even as a wild card. Okay. Yeah, Charlie has all that info recorded, but um, I, I'm pretty sure I had them missing. But yeah, either way, those three, you know, at least financial big market powerhouses that we thought all decided, you know what, just really wave the white flag and uh, try and recoup some of that money and let's just give players away. So The Padres choked the most of anyone. They've got Soto, Machado, Tatis, and Bogarts in their lineup. And at least three of those guys, well, who knows with Tatis because he does have a failed drug test. I'll, I bet he gets in, but... Xander's probably going to be a borderline Cooperstown case. I, I don't know if he gets in or not, but man, that's probably the best lineup in baseball and they couldn't do it. And their pitching hasn't even been that bad. So it has been the lineup. Yep. Well, and now the talks about moving Xander to first base, the most brutal thing I saw on Twitter today was that they're calling Xander uh, Xander Hosmer. So if you're wondering how bad things are going over there, it's it's not great. <laughs> so if you're one of those, I, I wanted Xander back on the right deal. I didn't want him for 11 years. So that kind of makes me laugh a little bit. But there you go. You know, it, it could always be worse. I so. remember so many Red Sox fans wanting Hosmer. And I wasn't one of them because I, you know, seven years at, you know, 150, whatever it was, just didn't sound good. And then we got Mitch Moreland. And initially I I was pissed at that because I wanted an upgrade. But then I'm like, well, at least it wasn't Hosmer. (laughs) And Moreland was a hero, you know, that October. So, yeah, they ended up making the right move there, not biting on the Hosmer contract because he probably would have come here given his uh, his connection to the city. So, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, a, a rare a rare time where they actually made the right move going with a, you know, smaller market deal. So good for them. But all right, with that, we will wrap up this roundtable episode. So thank you all for tuning in. Uh, our next show will be Monday morning. The weekend crew will have you guys to recap the Kansas City Royals series. So we'll see how that one goes. So until then, everyone, take care. <laughs>